Welcome to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. This episode, Green Mining. The Canadian North, indeed all of Canada, needs income in order to thrive. Yes, we're a modern country with many industries and lots of economic diversity. Yet, when all is said and done, mining and its associated industries is the key to future wealth. Real wealth. Wealth on the scale of a great power. Dangerous wealth. Mining is an inherently dirty business. You dig a big hole in the ground and it's bound to get messy. Worse, the industry creates about 10% of all climate gas. But we use minerals and metals every day. We need mining. We'd be hypocrites to think otherwise. We also know from recent events that the free world needs raw material from reliable sources. More than this, there's a demand for green mining. Democracies can't trust countries like China or Congo or Russia. Canada has a huge political advantage, even though, as I will explain, we undermine the industry at every turn. Before I ask, what is green mining? Let's step back a minute. Remember, The land and its resources are the heritage of Indigenous peoples. Whatever you think about treaties, royalties, or crown land, future generations of First Nations will want to live on this land. Of course, they will live differently from their ancestors, but they are the first stakeholders. The First Nations insist that resource exploitation not come at the expense of the boreal forests, the lakes and the rivers, and the amazing ecosystems. They feel the impact of climate change and want to cut CO2 and methane. I've explained how small modular reactors can help with meeting their energy needs, but it must be paid for. Meanwhile, Canada has announced plans to fast-track the approval of mining licenses. The government warns that Canada will lose investments if we don't. The response from Indigenous leaders was that while they're okay with mining, they'll fight if a project harms them or the land. You see, they already believe the land is really theirs. The First Nations have every reason to be wary of Ottawa. Too often, First Nations are seen as against resource exploitation. That may be inaccurate. It's complicated. Let me tell you a quick story. In the 1970s, I produced a documentary for CBC Radio called Wings on a Canoe. It told of a World War I pilot named Lloyd Rochester, a geologist by training, who first strapped a canoe onto the pontoon of a float plane to go prospecting. During the Great Depression, he and other bush pilots skimmed the treetops of the Northern Shield in search of mineral deposits. They mapped the North, eventually finding rich deposits. I became friends with Lloyd and his wife Frankie. Lloyd told me of the warm relationship he had with the indigenous communities he visited. In the heart of the Depression, the indigenous were the poor of the poor in Canada. But generous to him. One time, with a significant mineral discovery, Prospector Airways gave some shares in the claim to the indigenous family that trapped the area. The family flaunted their new wealth. Soon, the rest of the tribe wanted shares, and the squabbles began. As the old saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. The point is, to this day, Canada has not figured out how to extract resources and be fair to the people of the North. I'll return to this issue later. Back to my main point. The mining industry helped Canada recover from the Great Depression well ahead of other countries. Then, when the Second World War broke out, 
Canadian metals proved critical to the war effort. Copper, iron, gold, nickel, Canada had it all. To this day, Canada remains one of the top mining countries on earth. We arguably have the second largest mineral reserves of any country in the world. We have massive amounts of basic metals, plus cobalt, thorium, titanium, lithium, ingredients needed for batteries, all kinds of industries. Yet, the resource potential has barely been tapped. Ironically, Canadian mining has actually been in decline. As the pandemic started, mining investments in Canada had dropped by half from a 2014 peak of $166 billion. There are reasons. Mining in our north is as much as two and a half times more expensive than elsewhere. Opposition from environmentalists and indigenous peoples and the high costs of transportation and energy have all made mining companies look elsewhere. While Ottawa's response is to fast-track approvals, there may be a better way. To me, the key to revitalizing the mining sector is to empower the people of the North. Today, Ottawa controls the regulatory process. The Indigenous people have no earthly reason to trust Ottawa. But the current system for things like the approvals of a mine is a patchwork. Each Indigenous community is up against layers of government and an industry where even the small players, the so-called juniors, are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. That's assuming the Indigenous are not fighting amongst themselves over who gets the payola. Ideally, there would be a single set of clear green regulations and less red tape. That is, one window service to the industry that coordinates on behalf of all levels of government. Investment decisions would be easy and fast, but this can only happen if the First Nations also sit at the table with equal rights and equal powers. I'll explore this topic in much more depth later. Public pressure, meanwhile, is demanding green mining plus. Basically, green mines have no carbon footprint and produce little pollution, plus they're socially responsible. Totally idealistic, but that's the ideal mining utopia. In the real world, over the years, there have been many disastrous mining accidents and a trail of corruption and death around the industry, but the mining community increasingly gets it. A significant number of mining companies are on board with the idea of green mines and social responsibility. Those are the ones Canada wants to welcome, but have been discouraged. We need a win-win. Countries, too, are looking at making the world greener. Canada would not be alone. In South America, Chile, for example, tried to rewrite its constitution in a way that addressed the, quote, climate and ecological emergency facing the world. They cited the mining industry as culprit number one. That constitution ran into trouble, but the issue is not going away, and the mining industry paid attention. At this point, you rightly ask, won't green regulations drive up costs? Canada actually anticipates this and is already moving in the right direction. Remember, SMRs in theory can produce either hydrogen or electricity at a mine site or at a smelter with no carbon footprint. This is not just a wild idea. One SMR is being designed right now in New Brunswick specifically for mines. With carbon-free energy, the industry can be part of a hydrogen economy revolution. Goldcorp, yes, a gold mining company, has an example of the kind of mine I'm talking about. They'll use all-electric machines instead of diesel at a mine in Borden Lake. 
This will eliminate 7,000 tons of CO2 a year. My guess is that power from an SMR will be essential in several decades in almost every mine. For remote locations, there is no green alternative. Increasingly, newer equipment is also more and more robotic, so there's a change in the kind of jobs needed at a mine. Robotics will make both mining and smelting greener and more efficient. It's happening, and Canada is at the forefront. Every week, the mining industry reports on new initiatives to go greener. For example, in smelting, hundreds of millions of dollars are being invested to eliminate coal-fired steelmaking. Traditional smelters burn coal and literally suck the oxygen out of iron oxide. These coal smelters then release CO2. The Swedes have developed another technology for smelting, one that relies on hydrogen instead of coal and emits water rather than CO2. Of course, mining is still heavy industry and still dirty, and that cannot change. Idealism has its limits, but the mess and the toxic pollutants can be largely contained and the climate damage minimized. Do both of these, and what you get is greenish minerals. The final huge problem for northern mines is transportation. The places where minerals occur are usually in the middle of nowhere. Of course, to indigenous communities, this is very much somewhere. Still, the cost of getting in and out of remote locations is horrendous if you want to run a mine and ship that ore to market. If you also demand that transportation be green and carbon-free, that adds to the challenge. We have to think outside of the box. This said, the demand for green minerals is growing and consumers are pulling the wagon. But we're missing opportunities to attract investment. Ottawa is absolutely right about that. In Vancouver, for example, a new bridge is being planned that'll cost over $4 billion. The main ingredient is steel. The steel is being bought from China, which uses coal-burning smelters. This is simply unacceptable. It should be built with affordable green steel. In the future, Canada should provide this steel, creating Canadian jobs. To illustrate the green mining challenge, consider the iron mine on Baffin Island, way up in the eastern Arctic, as a case in point. It's a perfect example of the kind of dilemma faced by communities and mining companies all over the north. I've never been there, so this is a view from afar based on the public record. The iron ore in Baffin is exceptionally high grade. The owner, Baffinland Iron Mines, wants to triple the output from 6 to 18 million tons a year. To ship the ore out, they want to build a 110-kilometer railway that would make 20 train trips every day. During the summer, 176 shiploads would pass through a fragile narwhal habitat to take the ore to smelters. The mine already has a constant stream of trucks on an existing tote road to the harbor. The mining company says it's doing all it can for the environment, even as it strives to become, and I quote, the lowest cost producer of high-grade iron ore in the world. Many of the 11,000 residents of Baffin Island oppose the expansion for three reasons. First, the Inuit rely on the caribou herds as a major source of protein in their diet. The caribou migration across the tote road is already disrupted and would get much, much worse. Second, they fear damage from the ships to the Narwhal Marine Conservation Area and the ocean ecology more generally. And third, while the money is welcome, they know this is temporary. They have a longer-term perspective. 
What's needed is that win-win solution. Here's a suggestion. To start, in an ideal world, the Inuit would lead the project. They would own the mine, set the standards, and subcontract the mining operation. The Baffinland Mining Company could run the mine, but only as a subcontractor. The relationship, in short, should be reversed. Next, deal with as much of the dust, noise, and pollution at the mine site as you can, just like Goldcorp Mine in Borden Lake. Messy, but limited. And finally, transportation. Moving ore from a mine to a smelter is environmentally damaging and really expensive. Green mining needs affordable green transportation. Funny how I keep coming back to that transportation issue. Happily, there is an answer to that as well. And it's so simple, it's almost funny. You've been listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. My thanks to Tom Platt for the theme music, Tom Evans for my artwork, and technical support from Mike Mackin. Tune in again, and please spread the word 